Well, as you're being seated, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, this is on page 1172 on the Pew Bible in front of you, if you want to open up and turn there. Page 1172, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. You know, there are good churches and there are not so good churches, right? I mean, you understand that if you've been to a number of different churches in your lifetime, you, you kind of understand that. There are good churches, there are not so good churches. And the church at Thessalonica to whom Paul addresses this letter that we're going to study this morning and for the next several weeks, this was a good church. It was a spiritually healthy church. Paul had visited the city of Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, and while he was there, he began to share the good news about Jesus Christ, and people uh, began to respond to that, and people were saved, and a church was born. And it is a good church. But they didn't live in good times. You see, the unbelievers of that city uh, were not too happy with Paul coming in and sharing this message about Jesus Christ. It, it upset the religious apple cart of that community. And they were so upset, in fact, that they formed a mob. And they went after Paul. My, I'm sure they were intending to kill him. Uh, but he had already escaped the city. And so they found some believers, some of these new Christians, one named Jason and others, and they dragged them before the city elders and they began this time of persecution of these believers. It was a tough time and a tough place to live. Their society wasn't into religious tolerance and freedom. You might understand then why these believers in Thessalonica were very interested in the second coming of Jesus Christ. It appears more than any other group of people that Paul wrote, these folks were very interested in the day of the Lord, when it would be, and what it would be like. And so Paul, when he writes them in both letters, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, he deals with this issue of the second coming of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't just deal with that issue. He also talks to them and writes to them about living out the Christian life while we wait. And that's what we're going to talk about over the next several weeks. How to be the church while we wait. And notice I didn't say how to go to church. We don't go to church. I understand we use that, that kind of language when, when we talk about gathering in this assembly on a weekly basis. But, but really, truly, we don't go to church as much as we are to be the church. And what does that look like as we wait for the return of the Lord? Well, that's what Paul is going to show us over the next several weeks. So let's begin reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 1 and read the entire chapter and then talk about it for a few minutes this morning. It starts off this way. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightfully so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. 
All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Now, just, just a note here. He's not suggesting that, that they are counted worthy in the sense that they are earning salvation uh, through their suffering. That somehow they, they'll be counted worthy if they, if they go through this time in a worthy way. What, what he's saying there is that this, this suffering, this persecution that they're enduring... It has a, has a way of demonstrating, of exposing, if you will, the genuineness of their faith. Look at verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with an everlasting destruction and shut out of the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. On the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. There's evidence that we don't earn our salvation. How are they included in that group of people for whom the Lord was coming back? Because they believed the testimony. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 11. With this in mind... We constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition every desire for goodness and every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would give us, as always, eyes to see and ears to hear, Father, that we may approach your word with a submissive spirit and that we would submit to whatever you teach us through your word by your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a, here's a question. This is just a thought question, not really one to be answered. But here's a question I want to start with this morning. Are Christians in America persecuted? Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Certainly we are not persecuted in the way believers were persecuted in the first several centuries and in the way believers have been persecuted around the world and in the way that many believers are persecuted even today. This is from the website from the Voice of the Martyrs. I'm going to mention it again later in the sermon. Uh, but this is from just a month ago. The persecution of Christians in Tanzania continues. On the night of Sunday, June 2nd, the home of Pastor Robert Nye in northeastern Tanzania was attacked by a large group of radical Muslims. The attackers broke into the home and attacked Pastor Nye with machetes. The pastor received serious cuts on his hands and his arms as he raised his arms to protect his head from the blows. Doctors at the local hospital said the injuries were beyond their ability to treat and urged that he be rushed to a hospital in a nearby larger city for treatment. For centuries, Christians have suffered this kind of persecution, in addition to imprisonment and even death. Now, we haven't faced that kind of persecution here, have we? Not yet, but it doesn't mean that we won't. The New Testament is clear that living the Christian life, being a follower of Christ in this fallen world, means that we will face persecution. Jesus said it, John 15. Paul said it. Peter said it. See, persecution is the rule for a life of faith, not the exception to the rule. Now, in this country, we have been living for many years with the exception to that rule, have we not? 
because of the, the uh, extraordinary influence of Christianity on Western culture and on uh, the founding of our nation and on the founding fathers, and they were not all Christians, but listen, they were heavily influenced by Christianity. And because of that, we live in a society or have lived in a society that has been generally favorable towards Christianity. That's been a part of our history. But even a casual observation of the trends of our society shows us that this is changing. Statements of faith are increasingly unwelcome in the public sector. Statements of faith that we find in many of the speeches of our founding fathers, that we find in some of our founding documents. These, these kinds of statements of faith are, are increasingly unwelcome in our public sector. I've told you before, a number of years ago, the library renovated the facility down here. When they had a grand reopening, they invited me to come and to pray at the grand reopening. And I said I would. But then some higher-ups in the hierarchy of the library system, not the folks at this library, but other folks, uh, found out that I would pray in the name of Jesus, and I was uninvited. You cannot pray in the name of Jesus at a public ceremony. I've been invited to pray at naturalization ceremonies in Gainesville where, where people are becoming United States citizens, and they'll call me and they'll say, you know, would you pray? And I said, yeah, well, are there any restrictions? Well, it has to be an ecumenical prayer. And I said, what does that mean? They said, you can't pray in the name of Jesus. And so I don't. I don't go. I can't pray in the name of Jesus. I'm not going to do that. And it's not just in the public sector. It's becoming harder to practice your faith in the private sector as well. Two weeks ago, a street preacher in London was arrested for calling people who engage in sexual immoral lifestyles to repent. And by that, he taught, he was in his sermon, he's a street preacher, in his sermon he was talking about people who, who engage in lust, and, and sexual, uh, uh, premarital sex and homosexuality. He was calling people engaged in these kind of lifestyles to repent. Now, it's not against the law to be a street preacher in London, but it is against the law to preach against homosexuality. And so he was arrested. In Sweden, the pastor was sentenced to a month in prison under their hate speech law for preaching from Leviticus, which prohibits homosexuality. Now, why am I mentioning all of that? Because we're seeing the same kinds of trends here. And what happens over there, generally, after a while, ends up happening here. What are we going to do as a church when we're told that we cannot say no to hiring a staff member because of their lifestyle? Because someone's a homosexual, an open homosexual, and wants to apply to be the student pastor at our church. Not that we need one right now, but, but <laughs> 50 years from now, you understand Right? Or the pastor. Or the worship leader. What are we going to do when we're told you cannot do that? See, we're seeing the similar trends here. This is a story from Colorado just a month ago. It says this, A gay couple is pursuing a discrimination complaint against a Colorado bakery, saying the business refused them a wedding cake to honor their Massachusetts ceremony and alleging that the owners have a history of turning away same-sex couples. Now listen, I'm not picking on homosexuality as if it's the only sin out there, but this is where the cultural battle is taking place in our world today. As more states move to legalize same-sex marriage and civil unions, the case highlights a growing tension between gay rights advocates and supporters of religious freedom. Mullins 28 and Craig 33 filed the discrimination complaint against Phillips, the owner of the bakery, after visiting his business in suburban Denver last summer. After a few minutes looking at pictures of different cakes, a couple said Phillips told them that he would not make one of them, he would not make a cake for them when he found out that it was to celebrate their wedding in Colorado after they got married in Massachusetts. Phillips has said making a wedding cake for gay couples would violate his Christian religious beliefs according to the complaint. If Philip loses the case and refuses to comply with the order, 
He would face fines of $500 per case and up to a year in jail, his attorney said. Under the new health care law, Hobby Lobby and other businesses owned by Christians who oppose abortion would be forced to provide an abortion-inducing birth control pill to their employees who would like that. They're challenging this in court, which is a good thing. But it's telling that they even have to challenge something like this in court. It's, 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 it's evidence of where we've come to in a society. The Catholic Church has been put out of the adoption business in some states because they won't place kids in homosexual homes, in homes with gay parents. And because they won't do that, because it violates their religious beliefs, what they believe God has said to be true, some states will not contract with them anymore. In New York City, a spokeswoman for the New York City Department of Education said this, Our view is that public school buildings, which are funded by taxpayer dollars, should not be used as houses of worship. A lot of schools, a lot of churches meet in New York City. You know, real estate there is hard to come by. They meet in schools. They rent the facilities. I was on a mission trip in New York several years ago with some of you from this congregation, and we worked with a church that met in a school. But now they're saying, well, you know, we don't think that should happen. Here's what I'm saying. Our culture is becoming more and more intolerant of our Christian faith, and it will continue to do so. And it will begin to cost you something. At some point, you're going to be asked to compromise what you believe to be true, what you know to be true, or pay the price for it. Right Now, listen, the price may be relatively minor in some cases. It may be an inconvenience. It may be somebody insulting you or somebody saying something about you that's not true. It may be a minor injustice, or it may be a year in prison. Because you wouldn't make a cake. So here's the question that I want to answer this morning. In light of the fact that the Bible says persecution is to be expected if you're living out the Christian life, and in light of the trends that we see in our culture, how should we prepare to handle persecution? As believers, how should we prepare for this? Now understand what I'm saying. When I say, when I'm talking about being persecuted for your faith, I'm talking about being persecuted for the proper uh, uh, demonstration of your faith. For properly living out your faith. If you're persecuted because you're a jerk, that's not the same thing. You understand what I'm saying? Even if you stamp the name of Jesus on it. If you're being a jerk and people treat you badly because of it, then that, that's different than what I'm talking about. But how do you handle persecution for your faith when you're living it out the way you should? Paul says that he shows us three things that we should be prepared to do when we are persecuted. So here's the first one. Be prepared to grow. Be prepared to grow. In verses 3 and 4, Paul commends the believers at Thessalonica for growing spiritually even during this time of persecution. You see, here's a spiritual reality that we don't like. God uses difficult circumstances. God uses hardships. God even uses persecution to grow us up spiritually. Peter said something like this in 1 Peter chapter 1. Look in your notes. I have it there. In all this you greatly rejoice. Now, in 1 Peter 1, he's talking about the, the promise of the inheritance that we have waiting for us in heaven. In all this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. 
These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, this genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. See, here's what you need to know. In this world, comfort and ease are not the, the best conditions for us to grow in spiritually. In this world, comfort and ease are not always the best conditions for spiritual growth. We don't wait for the right circumstances before we live out the life that God has called us to live. That would be like a football coach waiting for perfect weather before he's going to get his team out on the field. Can you imagine that? Imagine a coach that says, yeah, you know what? We're not going to practice today. It's too hot. It's too cold. It's too rainy. We're going to wait for just a really nice day, 75 degrees and clear skies before we're going to practice. Imagine a running back that complains to the coach about defensive backs that hit him when he's trying to run the ball to the end zone. Coach, I can't do this. It's too hard. Every time I try to run the ball down the field, these defensive backs hit me. The coach is going to say, get over it. That's the game. That's what you should expect and you need to learn to deal with it. That's how we've got to view the Christian life. Difficulty and persecution are to be expected and we're expected to grow spiritually under these conditions. If you have a different view of the Christian life, you're going to have a very hard time in this world. I heard an interview with a tightrope walker, one of these guys that walks on these high wires between buildings and over canyons and all this stuff. And he said that, that when he practiced as a kid, and his, his family was into this, so you know, as a kid this was part of, part of his life. When he practiced as a kid on a, on a cable that was relatively close to the ground, you know, just walking back and forth, practicing with the balance, his father would throw things at him while he's walking on this wire. And he had to concentrate. He had to make an extra effort to concentrate to keep his balance. Why did his dad do that? So he would get better. Persecution, if viewed rightly, can make us better as Christians. And notice that there are three areas of spiritual growth that Paul mentions that the Thessalonians experienced because of and in spite of their persecution. First, he says that they have grown in their faith. This is at the very heart of the Christian life, isn't it? Faith. This is how we enter into the Christian life. This is how we enter into a relationship with God. By putting our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. It's a one-time event. It's a one-time transaction. It's a forever thing. But our Christian life after that, our ongoing living out day-to-day Christian life, also requires that we have faith in God, that we trust Him. And nothing tests your faith quite like walking with the Lord, being faithful to Him, doing what He's called you to do, and then being persecuted for it. <laughs> or going through hardships and trials. You know, you, you go, God, what are you, I, I'm doing what you've called me to do. I'm walking faithfully with you, and this is what's happening to me. See, when God pulls out all of those crutches, when he pulls out all those things we, we rely on and we have nothing left but our faith in him, that's when our faith can really grow. Second, he said that they were increasing in their love for one another. This, of course, love is a distinguishing characteristic of the Christian life. And it's something that, that persecution should enhance in us. In other words, if we're believers and the love of God is in us, then persecution, especially in the context of a community of faith, should enhance our love for one another. Picture it this way. If you're, let's say you're on a cruise ship, a bunch of other passengers, and, and that, that cruise ship begins to sink. Not like that would ever happen, right? Yeah, that has happened. 
All right, so you're on this cruise ship with all these other passengers, and it's, and it's beginning to go down. You've got two choices. One is you can, you can push passengers out of the way. You can knock them down on your way to the lifeboat. Or you can become part of a collective effort to help as many people as possible find their way to safety. You see, this crisis gives you an opportunity to practice love. When there's a crisis of persecution in a community of faith, it gives you an opportunity to practice love within that community of faith. I don't know this for sure, because I haven't had this much experience with this, but I'm willing to bet that communities of faith, Christians, believers in areas of the world where they experience significant persecution, that those, those communities have a, a, a heightened sense of love and connectedness with one another. Because they're going through that together. I think it has a, a way of driving people together in love. I went to Turkey a number of years ago on a mission trip, and, and I had the opportunity while I was there, I think it was on a Friday, to go to a, a Catholic mass at a Catholic church there. Now, I'm not Catholic, and I have issues with Catholic doctrine, but while I was there in the city of Adana, I, I went to this Catholic mass. And it's really interesting when you enter into a church in a hostile environment like that. This was a church that had walls built around it, rather tall walls, I mean, kind of security walls. This was a church that had a gate out front that was locked. And when it was time for worship, they would unlock the gate, and the worshipers would come in, they'd shut it, and they'd lock the gate again. So when you go into an environment like that, there's this automatic sense of connectedness and community with those other worshipers. You have the sense of, we're in this together, and, and people on the other side of that wall are not for us. And it drives you together and gives you an opportunity to practice love when you face persecution as a community. And third, he says that they are persevering. They're sticking to it. They're not giving up. They're pressing on through it. Trials like endurance training give us this increased ability to endure and press on no matter what. So how can we prepare for persecution? Well, be prepared to grow because God wants to grow you up in it. Whether it's severe, major persecution, or whether it's something relatively minor. Whatever it might be, God wants to use it to grow you up. Second, he says, be prepared to wait. Not only do we need to be prepared to grow, we need to be prepared to wait. And verses 6 through 10 are all about God's judgment on wicked people. And in this context, it's particularly about God's judgment of those people that are persecuting these Thessalonian believers. But notice when it'll happen. It won't happen until the end. It'll happen when Jesus comes back. And that means we have got to wait. You know, I'm nearsighted. That means if I take off my glasses like this, I can't see anything clearly beyond right about there, about 12 inches from my face. So if you've ever wanted to make a face at me while I'm preaching, now's the time to do it. Not you, honey. <laughs> really, I can't see you. I, I can see colors, but I can't see you. And what that means is, it means without my glasses, I cannot function well in this life at all. I can't see my notes. I couldn't drive. It'd be very hard to study, to use a computer, any of that. And I can remember the day that I got my glasses for the first time. I was in college, and I had noticed that I was having trouble when my professor would write something on the board. I'm having to squint. I can't see it. I couldn't recognize friends that weren't like right in front of me. If they were off in the distance, I couldn't see them. So I went and got my eyes checked. Sure enough, I needed glasses. I got a prescription. The day I picked them up, I remember 
putting them on, and I was stunned by the difference it made in my vision. My eyes had become increasingly worse, but it, it, it was over such a long period of time that I hadn't realized how bad they had gotten. And when I put them on, I could see things, especially in the distance, that I had not been able to see for a very long time. Now here's the point of all of that. Spiritually nearsighted people, people who can't see beyond the here and the now, will have a hard time functioning in the Christian life. So much of the Christian life is about what will happen when Jesus returns on that day. On that day, He will make all things new. On that day, He will restore what has been lost. On that day, He will bring righteous judgment to the earth once and for all. And that's what Paul tells the Thessalonians. And that's what he tells us. See, the message that he has for the Thessalonians is not just that God's going to exact judgment on the earth and He's going to punish wickedness. That's true. That's a big part of it. And we need not to forget that. But he's also telling them that it won't happen right now. Look at uh, the middle of verse 7. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. Listen, in our video-on-demand 4G culture, we want what we want now. And we will pay to get what we want now. And that's okay. Except I think it has weakened our capacity for patient endurance. And I think the fact that we as Americans have lived in a society free from persecution through most of our history, and I think the fact that we as Americans have lived in the most affluent nation in the history of the world has made our spiritual nearsightedness worse. I think we have a tendency to be cozy in this world. And I know I'm painting with a broad brush here, but sometimes we lack a sense of anticipation regarding the return of Christ. At least from a personal point of view. But suffering, and persecution in particular, has a way of putting some corrective lenses on our spiritual eyesight. Persecution has a way of turning our gaze from the here and now and to the world that is yet to come. And if we don't have that long-term spiritual vision, if somehow we think God is going to fix everything and make everything right in the here and the now, then we're going to have a very difficult time dealing with the increasing hostility of our culture towards Jesus Christ and those who follow Him. Why do I say that? Look at what Jesus said in John 15. If the world hates you, remember it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I have chosen you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Now, as I've said, we've been living in the exception, in a bubble, if you will, in our country. But that's the rule. So the world is going to hate us. But look at what Paul said. This is, this is, the, this is the, the, the counterpoint to that. In Romans 12, verse 19, Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. That's the application of what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians and what he's saying to us today. When you face persecution, when you face suffering of that kind, leave it in God's hands. Be willing to patiently wait for Him to set things right. Finally, how do we prepare for persecution, be prepared to pray. 
Be prepared to pray. I think that verse, verses 11 and 12 are perhaps the most interesting part of this passage. Given who Paul is writing to, it's not surprising that he tells them that he's going to pray for them. What is kind of surprising is the nature of his prayer. If you notice, not once, now he's writing to people undergoing this immense persecution, not once does he tell them that he's praying for the persecution to be taken away from their lives. Do you notice that? You see, for the New Testament authors, persecution is an expected part of the Christian life. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't pray for or shouldn't pray for relief from persecution if we uh, happen to experience that. that. That's okay. But we need to pray for that, realizing that ultimately that will not happen on a large scale until Christ returns. All right? So how do we pray when facing persecution? Well, Paul gives us three things to pray for here. First, he prays that God would make them worthy of his calling. And here's what he's saying. Here's what he means. That God would use this persecution, as we already talked about, to grow them up spiritually. Paul wants them to mature through this process. And so he prays to that end. It's very similar to what Job said. You remember Job? He wasn't being persecuted, but boy, he went through some really horrific stuff in his life, some terrible Terrible suffering. Look at what it says in Job 23.10. Just as Job speaking, But he knows the way that I take. When he tests me, I shall come forth as gold. And so Paul is praying that this persecution would enhance, it would expose, it would grow the spiritual life that they have, the faith that they have in God. Second, he prays that God would give success to the work of their ministry. I like the way the New Living Translation renders the end of verse 11. He says, May He give you power to accomplish all that your faith prompts you to do. I mentioned I was in Turkey a number of years ago. When I was there, one of the team members that was with us is a guy from Turkey. He grew up in Turkey. He was, uh, he was actually taken while we were there to the police station and questioned by the police because he had witnessed to some young people in a park and one of the young people, a couple of them were interested, but one of them wasn't very interested in what he was having to say. And he went and told the police, and the police came and picked him up and questioned him. You see, ministry is not reserved for those times when it's easy or convenient. Persecution makes ministry more difficult, and that's exactly why we need God to empower us. And that's what God is praying for these Thessalonians. As you're going through this, I'm praying that God would empower you. Third, he prays that in the end the Lord Jesus may be glorified. You might remember from our series a couple of weeks ago on the glory of God that the glory of God is everything. It is the goal of life. And not just in good times, but in bad times as well. Growing through persecution. Ministering by God's power. Having that endurance to make it through. All of this brings glory to God. And Paul says, you know, in the end, he, he, he doesn't pray that it would be taken away. He says, in the end, I pray that it would bring glory to Jesus. This is how Paul prayed for a church going through persecution. And this is how we should pray for ourselves whenever we find ourselves in the midst of persecution. But here's what I'm going to suggest this morning for you and for me. That we don't wait until we find ourselves in persecution before we pray. Let us take the opportunity, while we enjoy what we enjoy, to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are suffering serious persecution right now.